Today, we're gonna to be talking about a sensitive subject and that's sex after trauma. So just a quick trigger warning, but we are talking about reclaiming your sexuality after a trauma. So I've brought in Lisa Kalko, who, as you know from past videos, is a registered sex therapist. She does a lot of work in military sexual trauma. She does a lot of work with the LGBTQ community. So she's perfect. So let's welcome Lisa. You know, it's, it's probably one of the more common symptoms that many people experience post, you know, trauma um, or post assault. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, particularly when we look at the fact that a lot of sexual assaults are unreported or people have a lot of internalized guilt around it. They may harbor feelings of responsibility. They may not be sure if they did something to entice the sexual trauma or any sort of trauma for that matter. And so trying to navigate that land field or that landmine that is our brain post-trauma becomes really, really tricky. And then we just get caught in our own heads and or sometimes our bodies respond in ways that are trying to protect us. So it's something that we know many, many people will navigate and struggle with post-traumatic experience. In fact, it's usually one of the greater indicators that something has happened and we want to kind of pause and slow it down for a second and just explore. Yeah. And I think it's also just about acknowledging that trauma doesn't need to be what we think of it as that big T trauma. You know, sometimes trauma can look very different. Um, and especially if we're looking at sexual trauma, because what we know is that our, all too often, especially um, sex identifying women and or folks in our queer communities will have sexual traumas that they're afraid to discuss or that they feel like, you know, is it really a trauma? Did I consent? Um, you know, sometimes they may have been involved in, you know, something that started off consensual and then quickly shifted into something that didn't feel right or didn't feel comfortable or consent was assumed and, or, you know, they, they weren't really wanting to participate, but they just got stuck or frozen in their own bodies for fear of the reaction of the person who was assaulting them. A lot of the time I'm working with victims you know, they don't see themselves as victims or they don't see it as an assault. They they respond in a way that's really there to keep themselves safe. And in their response, they've internalized that they've allowed this to happen, even though they didn't want it to happen. And that can be a really difficult part when we're just trying to look at trauma and, and particularly sexual traumas of, you know, that how do we re-navigate consent? How do we look at consent as a, a really powerful word? And, you know, what was your response at a moment to keep you safe? Did you really consent? And how can we help shift that for you to have more informed, supported, resourced sexual health and or sexual experiences following? Mm-hmm.
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's a big part of, you know, the power dynamics that come with something like a sexually intimate experience, because we're vulnerable. We're opening ourselves up both physically and emotionally to a partner that we hope or we we trust. In some cases, we're maybe new and exploratory where we don't have that trust yet. But to be sexually intimate does require a vast amount of vulnerability and trust that the person's not going to hurt us or the person's going to engage in something that is consensual with us. Or sometimes we have hopes and wishes and wants that we're not communicating and therefore we move into these sexual interactions in a way that is, you know, going to be trying to elicit an, an, um, an unconscious response or sometimes even a conscious thought. In that, you know, we're going to be kind of, you know, checking certain parts of ourselves or wanting to override certain inhibitions. And as you described in the addictions community, sometimes those inhibitions are overridden by substances where we're finding ourselves in situations we're not fully sure we want to consent to. And that's why when we're looking at that consent piece, and you'll hear me reference that a lot, a lot, a lot when we're looking at sex after trauma, is, is this something I actually even have the full faculties to decide? Is this something I have my full mental clarity to engage in? And it's not to say you can't have sex um, after, you know, you've had a few beers or after you've had, you know, an experience or you've, you know, done some other sort of drug or something. It's really about, is that what you want? And, you know, it's okay that some folks will be like, yeah, no, it was totally fine. Like I was still able to make an informed decision. Please know we're not trying to villainize anyone. We're simply acknowledging that it's a really complicated, twisty, difficult piece to navigate. And sometimes we make decisions we're not comfortable with. The biggest thing about that is we're not going to judge you for that. Like we all make some pretty shitty decisions sometimes. I am not saying that engaging in non-consensual, non-consensual intercourse is a shitty decision. I'm saying that sometimes we make decisions that aren't in alignment with our strongest or best self. And it's okay. We can be kind to ourselves about that too. We just want to hold that non-judgmental space around it and look at why did we make that decision? Did I make it because I thought I needed to, to get the, the, the partner or because I really wanted that in that moment. And when I started it, I no longer did. Or I thought it was okay and then it wasn't okay. And we can start to shift the dialogue around consent as an ongoing process. Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing is about knowing your triggers and being able to really set an awareness for yourself of what is it I need? What is it I want? What are the things that are going to kind of excite my trauma response? And that could be, you know, your trauma response might be like, no, I reject, I abort, I put it away. I don't want people coming near me. Or in some folks, it might be a hypersexual response where it's like, I want all, I need all, I have this innate desire to be close to and connected with other human beings. And so that's part of that reclamation, which is first, let's just figure out what's going on. Is this a need or is this a want or is this something you really feel empowered to do? And what triggers that? What are the things that are underneath? You know, when we, when we pause the judgment and we get curious about ourselves, then we can start to see, hmm, 
What do I want? Is this what I need? Is this something that's really going to help me feel whole as a human being? Then that leads us to the next part, which is sex after trauma is so important to have boundaries, to know our boundaries. When we teach boundaries in our classes and even with our family folks, we always say boundaries are things you can only put upon yourself. We cannot create boundaries for other people. And you'll hear me repeat this frequently. Anytime I talk about consent or, you know, boundary work, you know, it's those series of yes and no's or those affirming things that say, this is what I need to keep me safe. I can't say, Joanne, I don't ever want you to shoot a video of me again. You're a person. You can do what you want. Do I like it? No. Can I stop you? Truthfully, I can't. I can only show up in the way that allows me to be safe. So if I just didn't show up to this video, then you couldn't shoot it with me in it. But I can't control whether or not you choose to shoot it because that's you. But I can say, I'm going to show up to this video and here are the things that I'm willing to talk about or here are the things that I'm willing to do. Or let's say you ask me a question I really don't like. The choice is mine to answer. The choice is mine. And that really puts me in charge of my own power. That's when we're looking at boundaries and saying, what are the things that I'm comfortable with and how can I do so on my own terms in a way that honors me authentically? Another thing we want to really look at is exploring what makes us safe and knowing that with ourselves. So some folks will you know, engage in solo pleasure, figuring out what are my do's and don'ts? What are the places that really excite me? What are the places that repel me? And it's also important to know that when we go to that space, it can bring up a lot of body image. It can bring up a lot of dysmorphia. It can, you know, a lot of the folks I work with, not just women. In fact, I think it's a bit of a misnomer that just women would experience sexual trauma or have difficulties with intimacy post-trauma. I actually see that a lot, even with males who've experienced PTSD or had other sort of sexual traumas, not even just sexual traumas, but traumas in general, where they might struggle with um, erectile dysfunction, they might struggle with performance anxiety, they might struggle with other sort of hyperarousal concerns, they might struggle with proclivities that they feel are judged by their intimate partner. And they can have their own body images around that. In the same way, a lot of women or sex identifying women may struggle similarly in like, am I good enough? You know, do I have um, scars on my body, for example? Is there something that I don't want someone to see? You know, how we respond to that. And so it's about really starting to get to know our own bodies, our own selves. What are our hard pass no-go areas? What are the places we want to have that intentional work around? And that's where something like graded exposure with a trusted partner might be really helpful in us reclaiming our own sexuality. And I've seen this even where we're looking at that with some BDSM circles where, you know, it's, it's thought, oh my gosh, they're so taboo, but really they can be a beautiful space that some folks do navigate their sexual trauma. And I'm not saying that is a a positive or negative. I'm simply just acknowledging that being exposed to or in an environment where it's okay to take back your control and to know that you have safe words. You are now in a position where you can say no. Your partner has to respect those boundaries. And again, you know, they don't have to, It's, but it is part of safe, you know, consensual work in BDSM communities. And I really want to acknowledge that for them because, you know, when we go into these different spaces, sometimes they get a bit of a bad rap. Um, but I think that, you know, it can be really valuable in terms of the diversity of sexual health and the diversity of reclaiming experiences because it's so powerful 
to be back in that space, knowing this time is my choice, my time, my, my ability to go there. And my partner may explore parts of my body that make me feel uncomfortable. And I'm going to be okay with that. Or maybe I'm not okay with that, but I'm going to work through it with them. We also want to test out some different, you know, strategies when we're in those moments. And that's, again, where exposure to those, those things that we want to avoid can be really valuable. Using things like mindfulness, sitting in the discomfort, having that dialogue with our intimate partner, like communication is so key. We don't have that with, you know, just say the casual hookup. Maybe you do, maybe you're like totally, you know, happy to just share everything, but the vast majority of us need a bit more titrated trust, a bit more opportunity, um, a bit more work on how do I share this? How do I say that? I mean, granted, there are some folks who are completely liberal and totally willing to share everything that they want and don't want. And I encourage that. But much of my experience is when it comes to talking about sex, people get really guarded they can get in their own heads and especially post-trauma. There's that that place of what is appropriate to share, what is not appropriate to share. And so we want to start to override our previous experiences with new positive experiences and doing so just, you know, with the, okay, this feeling's coming up. I'm going to acknowledge the feeling. I'm not going to avoid it because we know avoidance doesn't really work. I'm going to honor it. It's serving a purpose is trying to do something to alert me. And how can I have this really healthy dialogue with my intimate partner about what I need in this moment? And sometimes it might be, I really just need an orgasm. And sometimes it might be, I just really need to be held close and comforted. One of the greatest things that I hear breakdown in couples work is they may be talking about the sex, but I always say it's something about the sex. It's usually a communication breakdown about a deeper need. And sex becomes a way of which we express that. Like, I need you to want sex with me. I need you to have sex with me. I need us to do the, you know, the sexy things, or I need you to dress up in lingerie. It's probably not about lingerie. It's about knowing that my partner cares enough about me to do something that allows me to feel wanted and valued or to show me that they want me or that we're doing these sexy things together. So that's really, really important. We also want to ensure that when we're going back to kind of intimacy, that we have an emergency plan, like we have a safety plan around that. And again, kind of referencing BDSM communities, there is a lot, a lot of talk around safety words, you know, off ramps, like, well, they don't use the word off ramp. I use the word off ramp. Um, But, you know, just like, how do we prepare for if something goes to the left, if something is triggered? We're not always, you know, familiar with where the brain is going to go when we're experiencing something that's new or different. Um, And sometimes they can bring up something that is uncomfortable. So we want to just be prepared for that. How do we calm ourselves down through that? And sometimes it could be, like I said, deep breathing. Um, It could be a mindfulness exercise. It could be intentional awareness. What are the tools we have in our toolbox? We want to be comfortable with those tools before we start doing something like exposure therapy so that we can kind of walk through and like, okay, this is what I'm going to do when I'm triggered in this moment. This is how I'm going to navigate it. This is how I'm going to downregulate myself. Again, going back to trust. I trust my intimate partner or the person I'm being intimate with will respect my no. Will stop when I say stop. Will kind of hold that space. I'm going to, you know, we can do so with a really safe and graded exposure to leaning into that discomfort, knowing that it's okay, but also not just having it be an all or nothing thing. Like, well, we did this thing the one time it didn't work and that's it. This is stupid. 
can be easy to go to that space, but we want to reintroduce intimacy in a way that really allows us to reclaim our sexuality. And so we also want to acknowledge that that can be both hypo and hypersexual. Some folks are like, I'm just going to go at it. I'm going to love it. I'm just going to take charge and I'm just going to enjoy my sex with whoever I see. That can be a response. And it's one that, you know, some folks will acknowledge. Some folks, you know, just are like, I really wasn't interested in sex. I really don't want sex anymore. It's not something that does anything for me. And we can see that sometimes even in more of an asexual presentation, I'm not saying it is, you know, sexual trauma is um, directly correlated with asexual behaviors, but I'm acknowledging that some folks I work with who are asexual, one of the defining criteria is they'll say to me, well, I actually do want sex. I just don't have an interest in sex. And so that's where we see, okay, so there may be more of a hypo arousal. They're just not able to really energize their system enough to really want to experience pleasure. And that's okay because maybe they're just stuck in more depressive states or they're experiencing other things. And if we suspend that judgment for a moment and say, intellectually, you're telling me you do want intercourse or you do want sexual arousal or you do want a sexual experience or you do want intimacy in some way, how can we develop a new roadmap to help you achieve that? That's all part of sexuality. When we think about sexuality, it's just not intercourse. Sexuality is a vast range of sexual experiences and sexual expression. And it's not just about, you know, am I cis? Am I straight? Am I gay? Am I this? Am I that? Am I, you know, hyper? Am I hypo? It's like, it's all of the mess. It's all of the things. It's like your sexuality is unique to you. So we want to help you identify what is your sexuality? How often do you want to be having sex? How often were you solo pleasuring or self-gratifying before the trauma? How often are you solo pleasuring or self-gratifying now? How often were you intimate with your sexual partner before now? Where do you want to go back to? Maybe your life has changed. Is something, you know, is experiencing sexual pleasure something you want? All of these things become really important to talk about, as well as navigating, as I said, consent, but also just things like shame and guilt and all of those big feelings that come around it. Because once we open that up, a lot of people have an intense amount of guilt and shame around not being sexual or not being normal. Oh my gosh, when I hear the word normal, I'm just like, I really feel like I want to just you know, explain to them that normal is a setting on the washing machine. And even then, I don't even know that how that came to be on our washing machines. It's something that is so non-tangible. It's so diverse. I mean, like I've never met a normal person. In fact, I'm probably one of the most fucked up people I know. So I'm always curious, like, what is your normal? What is your baseline? Help us get to that place of understanding. And, you know, where do you want to be? Because being a normal, healthy, sexual person in a North American or global, you know, North construct looks very different than, say, in another culture. So I know I've been firehosing you lots of information, and I'm going to pause. And <laughs> I know you had other questions too.
Well, this is where, again, it varies a lot. And I would say that rather than being suggestive of a specific therapy that you should go and look at, I mean, because when we're, when we're looking at trauma-based therapies, oftentimes we look at um, trauma-based modalities like EMTR, or ISTP, or CPT, which is a cognitive processing therapy, um, or even, you know, prolonged exposure, for example, which is, you know, that exposure therapy I was referencing. To be honest, there's no right or wrong what it really is going to come down to working with your trusted person and, you know, developing a plan that meets where you're at right now. For some folks that might start off with just graded exposure to different stimulus of like, it was all I could do to get out of bed and walk down the street. So maybe we need to do some really basic, you know, ADLs, which are um, activities of daily living and figure out what can you do? Where do we need to start? Maybe that might be working with, like you said, neurofeedback to say like, Hey, let's slow down what's happening in terms of your cognitive thought processes or those automatic, um, you know, responses. Um, and let's interrupt those. Let's help shift where your brain is thinking. For some folks, it might be going in and doing something more of a deeper dive. So some of that could even be slowing it down and saying, you know, do we want to do something like a neurofeedback or exploring how we can get your brain out of the unstuck repeating patterns that might be contributing to you know what is causing your sexual health struggle post-trauma. Um, it really varies. And what I would say to that is there's no right, there's no wrong. It's about working with your trusted person, working with your, you know, your team, and whether that be a mental health clinician, whether that be your psychologist, your psychiatrist, maybe your family physician, it could even be your pelvic floor physiotherapist. I actually really want to put a plug in for you know the pelvic floor physiotherapist and you know just not in a way of, you know, a self-referral resource, because in fact, I, I work with so many of them, but in the way of they're such an amazing opportunity, both for men and women. We have this belief that only women can see public floor physiotherapists, but in fact, men can greatly benefit from that in terms of helping to increase their own body awareness and that post-trauma response what happens when I get an erection? Where does, you know, like my, my, my body tense up? What does that look like? So it's about consulting with your team and trusting their suggestions, trialing them. Sometimes, you know, we might make suggestions like, Hey, let's start with CBT or let's start with, you know, DBT, or let's start on regulating what's happening structurally before we do that trauma dive, before we can really go into a trauma-based therapy and I don't want to say like, oh, yes, you know, you can only use one of these evidence-based proven approaches for post-traumatic, you know, concerns or for any sort of trauma-related disorder, because sometimes it's deeper than that. Sometimes there are things in our, our arousal templates, or sometimes there are things that are, you know, skewed by other issues or other attachment traumas that we don't even know about that are also exacerbating the sexual trauma response and you know, we want to just be aware of, we might deal with even say the trauma and still struggle with the sexual response to it. And we're like, that doesn't make any sense. I've already gone through all of my PTSD therapy. Why am I still having erectile function, you know, problems? This, this must not have been related. In fact, sometimes it can be related and it's not that the therapy was bad. It's not that one is right or wrong. It's just that there's probably something deeper in that guilt or shame cycle that is preventing you from really feeling like you deserve to intimately connect, that you are able to show up as your authentic self. Because when we're sexual, like I said at the start, it's one of the most vulnerable experiences we can have. 
and you know, when we're there in those moments, it's like all of our shit's bare. Like you get to see all of my hearts, my parts, my bits, my bobs, everything. It's like, you know, it really takes a certain amount of trust. And so that can really get us in our own minds. And I don't know about you all, but like sometimes when I get stuck in my own mind, it is a dangerous, dangerous place to go. So we did a video with Dan on pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to link that at the end because it was fascinating. It, it was absolutely very interesting. Okay. Right. Well, anything that you want to add in closing other than you're not alone, that, that's the big one for me is so many people and not just women, but the people in general have been hurt and carry that with them. And it, and it affects us sexually with our partners, that lack of trust that I know for me, it was, it was disdain towards the opposite sex, what I really struggled with. Yeah. And I, I think I, you know, what I would hope to share with folks at the end of this is not only as you said, and I think it's so valid, you're not alone and it's okay if you don't want sex again. This is not an all or nothing thing. It's okay if you only want intimate touch. It's okay if you don't want um, pleasure. It's okay if you, you know, experiencing arousal is too much for you. It's okay if experiencing orgasm is too much for you. It's really about giving yourself grace and permission to know that there is so much diversity in our sexual beings and there's no one size fits all model. So I really just want to normalize that, you know, because sometimes I'll hear like, oh, you know, my son or daughter must be gay because they experienced, you know, a sexual trauma. No, you know, they might have happened after the fact. Sure, they might be attracted to somebody who they may see as less threatening or that might be. And as long as they're feeling as if they're having their needs met, And this is where they're at right now. There's no right or wrong when it comes to what we need, how we navigate this in a safe and consensual way. That's the biggest part. It's just normalizing it and and being responsible for our own bodies, our own choices in a healthy consent-based way. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. I always enjoy having these conversations with you.